Welcome to the Jolly Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Barrett. This podcast is for those who are interested in the conversation around equity, diversity, and inclusion. Each week, I'll be interviewing a guest who has something special to share or is actively part of building solutions in the space. Let's get started. I am so excited this week to talk to Cheryl Kababa. She is the Chief Design Officer at the Insights Design and Development Studio for Substantial. She's focused on reinventing the approaches of learning and collaboration in today's educational environment to help equity-centered research affirm and advance relationships between institutions, educators, and students. She talks to us about how design plays a role in addressing equity issues in education. In addition, we talked a little bit about her insights as well as key concepts, principles, and why they are essential to empower your end user. She's even going to share some specific projects where the application of human-centered design had a significant positive impact on addressing social issues. Join me for the conversation. All right, this week, welcome to the Jolly Podcast. We are excited to have Cheryl Kababa joining us. And I'm just excited because of all the work that you're doing. And I love to amplify folks that are doing design work, especially when it comes to inclusion. So I'm excited to have this conversation and I just want to thank you for joining me. Thank you, Melissa. I'm really happy to be joining you as well. So I'm just gonna kind of jump in and you let me know where we want to go. But I'm hoping that because of your background is just so amazing, I really wanted to kind of maybe start with just you sharing a little bit about your journey, how you became interested in design, particularly in the social impact space. Yeah, yeah, happy to. It's a it's a bit of a winding road. First off, I'm currently, I think of myself as a design strategist and researcher, and I run an equity center in design practice and systems thinking practice and at a small agency called Substantial, where we do research and insights. And my sort of path up to that, it's it's kind of interesting because I don't have any sort of formal degree in design specifically. My background is in journalism and in political science, but straight out of school, I went right into design. Um, I worked for the Seattle Times. And then for the decade after that, I basically became a digital product designer working for companies like Microsoft and Philips. And it's kind of interesting because after that, I shifted more into design research, which is where kind of finally came sort of full circle where my I felt like my degree in journalism actually started being activated because design research is oriented around understanding people's contexts who are using products, as well as 
kind of understanding their relationship with products, but also their challenges, their their needs, and translating them, advocating for them in product design. And so that has really resonated with me and has sort of, I've worked in multiple domains as a design researcher, and I'm currently working in education. I've been working in the social impact space for the last several years, including global health, and my work is pretty much exclusively in education now and the making more equitable products for education and helping teams do that as a design strategist. And so, yeah, that's kind of where I am now. I Yeah, I kind of went from being the one designing products to helping others kind of design products in an equitable way. I love it. Well, and, and I know we're going to get into kind of all of the wonderful things you're doing, but I figured I might ask you as, because I think your title is Chief Design Officer at the Insights Design and Development Studio at Substantial. And I wanted to see if you could maybe describe a little of the work that you do there and, and as a multidisciplinary design strategist, just to kind of, for all the lay people in the world who may not know what that means. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think oftentimes when people hear I'm a designer, they're kind of like, oh, what kind of design, like interior design or <laughs> fashion design, graphic design. And I don't really do any of those things. It's more about using the design process in order to make strategic decisions. And so when I talk about the design process, I'm talking about human-centered design. It's kind of a method in which we learn about people and their needs. We create many, many ideas around how to solve certain problems or how to solve for certain needs or pain points. And then we test and iterate on those kind of ideas and solutions until we come up with a solution. So it's a really fast process. It's very iterative and it's intended to engage people are going to be using your solutions at every turn. So that's what I think about as design is kind of that engaging in that process. And so my role is to kind of help teams engage in the design process and act as sort of both an advocate and a connector with those who will be who I think of as your end users and end beneficiaries. So in education, this is oftentimes the teachers who are in the classrooms will be, let's say you're designing ed tech products, who are going to be using your products and the students who will also be using your products and maybe are the beneficiaries of the products that you're designing. And it's really important to involve these folks, the actual end users, throughout that process of design and development. Um, because if you don't really understand what constitutes good experiences for them, you might learn really late after you've invested a lot of time, energy, money, building, engineering into something that they just won't use your products or your products won't do what they're intended to do or the the people running the school district might not even be buying your products. And so all of that is really important in terms of just like understanding who is going to be benefiting from the things that you're designing and creating and 
how you can better respond to how they'll be using those things. So that's kind of an overview of what I do and my team does within our practice. That's awesome. So so then how does that design play a role in addressing some of the equity issues that uh, exist in education? And I mean, I won't go on my political rant because I know there's so many different aspects of education and there's so many challenges when we think about education and addressing equity. So I love the fact that you're literally at the end user, like what can we create and how can we design it in order to give the benefits back to the teachers and the students that are actually teaching and learning. So how how can how how does it play a role in kind of those equity issues? Yeah. First, I want to say I'm not opposed to any like political rants because like it's <laughs> and it's probably it's not a rant. It's like no, based it's, on reality. Yeah. The fact that we don't have equitable distribution of resources in our school systems in America is based on historical factors like historical racism. And it it just shows that there's all of these underlying things systemically that affect student outcomes and can essentially divide student outcomes by demographic. And so part of doing equity-centered design is acknowledging that, is acknowledging these historic disparities and understanding that there are systemic responses to that. In terms of where we can kind of make a difference, let's say we're just working with a team that's designing and developing an ed tech product, like a supplement for a math supplement, a digital math supplement or something. What we can do is we can ensure that that product is being designed with students in mind who have been historically under-resourced so that these products and services are being designed in a way that will benefit them and hopefully lead to good outcomes for them. Because more often than not, you see products being designed for students or to be used in education at large that don't eat where they're not even thinking about the students who are most marginalized in today's processes. They are, if they're even being tested with students, they might be tested with students in a wealthy private school or students from like really super privileged districts, white dominant schools, where you're not seeing the breadth of experience in terms of the disparity of resources and other issues that might plague um, plague schools where students are typically historically under-resourced and marginalized in today's systems. So our job is to essentially elevate marginalized students' voice within the design process so that we can kind of make sure that their context is understood and that people are teams, organizations, companies are designing in a way that is responsive to their needs. If you're designing digital products, for example, and so many of these schools don't even have good internet access or you're designing supplements for students to do at home, but you find that the majority of students in some of these communities don't even have internet access at home, then you're failing them. And so you have to account for that those disparities before you even go into the design process so you can design 
inclusively and for all students and not just the most privileged ones. Yes, I love that. And I was I was telling you before I do some work on the digital infrastructure side. And one of the things we talk about, we spend a lot of time kind of focusing on opportunity zones where historically infrastructure has not been invested in. And so you see a lot of these challenges and issues amplified depending on, I can imagine, wherever the schools are that you're connected to, it can be more significant depending on exactly where those schools are. So is there, how has like some of the research informed some of your design for educational programs? And are is there, I mean, any insights you can share? Yeah, so it's it's kind of interesting because I know at the end of the day, we're helping to inform, let's say, ed tech product design. But a lot of our work actually lies in kind of engaging students and teachers in what gets invested in in education because they work really closely with educational philanthropies, for example, like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And what's really nice is being able to help them make investment decisions that are based on student voice and student voice from what we call priority students. So Black and Latino students, students experiencing poverty, multilingual students, like these are all students who have been sort of historically under-resourced within the educational system. And it's really interesting to kind of work with an organization like the Gates Foundation to consider where they should sort of invest in order to help create better outcomes for these specific students. And it's interesting kind of like bringing even middle school students into this process of them like understanding, oh yeah, the way that you talk about, for example, I worked on a grand challenge the Gates Foundation puts out these grand challenges, which is a challenge to the field to solve in a specific space, right? And we worked on one that was called the Algebra 1 Grand Challenge and balanced the equation. The Algebra 1 Grand Challenge was what it was officially called. And in this case, it was an acknowledgement that Algebra 1 is a gateway course that sort of determines whether students can be successful even in applying to STEM majors in college. Because like, if you're not exposed to Algebra 1 by eighth grade and you live in certain states, you might not even be able to, you're behind already. And this is even before you get into high school. And what happens is a lot of the priority students that we're referring to end up getting tracked into more remedial math and don't get exposed to that early on. And so the Gates Foundation sort of viewed this as a problem space worth investing in. And we worked on on sort of engaging students who were either Algebra 1 students currently or former Algebra 1 students to kind of understand their experiences, what their barriers were. And what was interesting was that that particular grand challenge, it could have gone a singular direction, maybe investing in a certain type of digital product, like let's say Algebra 1 supplements that students can use, um, priority students can use. But 
instead, because we learned so much that there's like all of these different systemic levers, they invested in different areas. And some might be in community programs that are oriented around helping tutor students in math. Another might be teacher professional development to help them basically integrate more culturally responsive approaches to how they teach math and algebra. Um, And so these are, there were like five different types of interventions or different lever types that they then went on to invest in. So I think something that's an advantage of taking an equity-centered design approach is that you recognize that one, change is incremental. There aren't any silver bullets, right? Like you have to kind of like make changes in different areas in order to have impact. I mean, this is also kind of like a social impact tenet. Like there's never, you're never going to do one thing that's going to kind of eliminate poverty for everybody, right? So you have to basically use these different levers at your disposal and put resources towards them. And so we're really, I'm really proud of the work of sort of gaining that understanding of systemically where impact can be had and then being able to help organizations direct resources that way so that they're not developing one thing like massive online course courses or something that end up like not having an impact on anybody. Well, uh, you see that a lot though. I mean, you actually see people going, okay, here's the here's a, a new whatever. And you have all this instruction, it's all internet based. And then the kid gets on there and it's like, yeah, it's every TED talk you've ever seen, which is like, we're going to solve the world's water problems with this one device. And yeah, things just don't happen that way. And they don't happen that way in education, which is why we have to take like, not just an equity center approach, but also a systems thinking approach to our work. Because if you don't, it's like, you could be doing everything you can to like, design something that might specifically work for somebody and there's all these other systemic ways that it could fail like it doesn't work with learning management systems that a lot of school districts are using um schools don't have the budgets for whatever it is you're designing they have different ways of assessing students there's all these things you need to understand in order to understand like the system into which you're kind of inserting this solution and be able to respond to that so that it can be successful and then it can lead to the impact that you want. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. Well, and I love that you bring in systems thinking because I was, I I mean, when I think about some of the principles or methodologies that you probably employ in your human-centered approach. People don't always think uh, when they, I think, well, I should say, I think in some cases when people think about systems thinking, they're thinking about systems in a different way. And your, it's, I mean, your view of systems is very broad. So can you speak to that a little bit in terms of, of systems thinking? Yeah, the easiest way I can sort of describe it is being human-centered in that way as well and understanding that there are different stakeholders at different levels who all have different incentives. And what you need to do in order to 
create the impact that you want is to have everybody align on whatever it is you're trying to do to intervene. Because if you don't understand, like, I think this happens a lot where it's like, you don't understand if you don't understand sort of state policy and education, for example, and you're trying to design new assessments, you're you're not going to get anywhere because you need to either adhere to whatever those policies are, or you're going to have to challenge them. And so I think oftentimes if you're coming from outside of this system and you're not familiar with who all the stakeholders are, then you might end up designing something that never gets used or can never even get off the ground because you're not understanding kind of like people's roles in facilitating whether or not something happens. I I recommend this book, Failure to Disrupt. And I think the author's name is Justin Reich. And it basically talks about how just over the last several decades, there have been these moments in education specifically where there'll be something new that everybody is like, this is going to change the landscape of education. Um, I mentioned massive online courses, like the way people were talking about that, like 12 years ago was like, there won't be any in-person colleges left. And it's just like, but that has like totally not happened. And there's all these other reasons why that didn't work. Like a a lot of the massive online courses that people were promoting and investing in were coming from these elite institutions. You weren't actually getting like any sort of credit or accreditation for for like taking those courses. Like there's all of these systemic things that exist. And you might even describe a lot of it as bureaucratic that people who are looking specifically to disrupt a system if you don't know how that works before you go into it, like you're setting yourself up to fail. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's all of our politicians right now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, let's let's create some human centered design uh, within that system. How about that? Yeah, and if you. <laughs> But I guess you need humans for that. Yeah, if you think about like what they're incentivized by, they're just trying to get elected and reelected, right? And so they can kind of say a lot of things that would require a huge amount of systemic change. And it's like, yeah, you can't really just like make that happen overnight. I think it's even like the case with like, I don't know, building infrastructure projects or what have you, kind of like when Seattle, like, we have a relatively new light rail system. And it's kind of funny. They have to basically kind of like lowball how much it's going to cost each time so that people will like vote for it. But then they're like, oh, actually, it's like more expensive than that. But if they say upfront how expensive it's going to be, how long it's going to take, etc., people will be like, no way, that's too much money and that's too long a time. And so I think we just like as sort of a society kind of lack that sort of systems lens, like where it's like, yeah, you have to kind of invest in these things long term. We had a real like wake up call during COVID, right? Like in terms of like our lack of in infrastructure, kids were in, in education, kids were in McDonald's parking lots to use the Wi-Fi in order to be going to virtual school. And it's like that, all of that showed like the disparities like so starkly in a way that a lot of people weren't willing to acknowledge before that actually happened. And I think, I mean, uh, 
the silver lining coming out of that is like there's an acknowledgement of those disparities, whether it can change or not is another question, but at least we kind of see for what it was. Yeah. Well, and even, I mean, if you think about some of the funding that's even out there, it's like, it's great to get funding, but there's clearly not enough funding to do what needs to be done. Right. And it's like, okay, we're chipping away. We keep kind of chipping away and chipping away. But at the end of the day, it's like we have generations of our kids that are in school that are still struggling with the challenges that we've seen for years. So so I'm going to shift myself because I will absolutely get into a whole nother topic. And I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about your book, which um, came out in 2023 called Closing the Loop, Systems Thinking for Designers. And it was released in 2023, but I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of an overview of key concepts and maybe highlight, I know you have eight principles for equity-centered research and why they're so essential to empowering the end users. So I'm hoping you can kind of get, and I know that's a loaded question, but... (laughs) but I want to make sure that people know that your book is out there and that you need to go buy it. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. And yeah, I think the the book sort of really touches on many of the things we've we've just been talking about, which is in order to kind of design solutions, I guess uh I I don't know. In the book I say I I keep using the word solutions, but I'm actually really reluctant to because if you think about systems and the way they work, oftentimes solutions are tomorrow's problems. And so you're never actually kind of solving, you're kind of intervening or you're navigating a problem space. So basically kind of like thinking about them as approaches, the the equity center designer, Antoinette Carroll, really emphasizes this idea of approaches rather than solutions because she works on kind of like community-centered, equity-centered design. And I, I really like that conceptually because it means like you need to kind of understand the feedback loop of when you make a change that it's going to potentially cause problems of its own. And it's really good to kind of think about that up front so you can mitigate or you can plan for it or what have you. So a lot of my book is oriented around that, like just this idea of being able to potentially address unintended consequences, also doing research with a lot of different stakeholders, as I mentioned before, like making sure like you're engaging, not just like your end users or your your end beneficiaries, but making sure you're doing that in sort of an equity-centered way, like making sure that you're not just kind of like looking at the most privileged of users or the average user and kind of looking at the extreme experiences that people have. This is also a tenet of inclusive design and also making sure that from a systems perspective, you kind of have a theory of change, that you understand like how these different ways of problem solving will eventually lead to the impact that you want to have. And so I think it's like this really um, meaningful, I hope it's meaningful for people who might read it, um, intersection between human-centered design or design thinking and systems thinking. Um, And a 
an important aspect of that, because I know your second question was sort of around equity-centered research and how to engage in that. Um, part of that is making sure that you're not doing any sort of analysis or design work in a vacuum, that you're actually sort of working with, collaborating with, co-designing with those for whom you're tasked with designing. And for education, for example, we do a lot of work with students, whether they're middle school students, high school students, or in post-secondary. The idea is that you should be engaging them at every turn in, for example, the design research project. And part of that is not just sort of extracting their stories and extracting their pain points or extracting their contacts, but it's also engaging them with in the design process to be able to design, to be able to imagine, to be able to kind of dream about how to solve the problems like that are affecting them most and working with you to do that. I love this Toni Morrison quote where she said, and I'm, I might be paraphrasing because that might, might not be exact, but she said, like, you have to dream a little before you think. And I think like part of doing sort of participatory design and co-design with people who are going to be most affected by what it is you're designing is a way of like being able to kind of dream about possibilities, being able to like dream about how something can be different in the future. And even if you can't make all of those changes, like just being able to engage in that process and kind of like narrow into what is possible, I think is like a really meaningful thing, especially for like students to go through who are almost never consulted around like their own for their own education. They're never asked like, do you think assessments should be different? <laughs> and they have a lot to say about that, right? And it's not necessarily doesn't necessarily mean you're able to like make all of that come true that they might want, but it helps them kind of understand themselves, like the system a little bit better and what the barriers are in our and helps them be able to reflect on that. So I think that that's like a really powerful aspect of sort of engaging in equity centered design as opposed to just design thinking or what I described as human centered design it sort of distributes the power a little bit more of like who is involved in the process. And it's not just held with like designers or developers. It's like, how can we get, how can we actually like give the power to like a 13 year old to be able to like have her say in how these things are being designed and created? I think it's, it's a wonderful thing because when you think about the generations coming now, they have to be, just so much more bold and confident and be able to express things in ways that people before technology <laughs> really didn't have to think about. And so there's so many other subtleties. And so when I see like equity-centered design, generations of our kids are like, why don't we have this already? Like, what? what's the problem? So and I love the fact that one of the things that I love, though, is that you also leverage your research from a storytelling perspective. And of course, my husband was a storyteller, professional storyteller. So I always kind of click on to kind of the storytelling aspect because there's so many benefits 
in just being able to tell the right story in how design has helped to really create the type of equity we need. Are there any examples that you might want to to Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's like, it's interesting because we hear, we hear so many stories about education, like from the students that we work with doing a project right now with my team that's engaging students in trying in thinking about the future of math like what would you want sort of like the future of math education to look like and we're using these prompts that are kind of like oh in 20 years this is what a classroom might look like or what have you and it's really interesting kind of uncovering or having these conversations with students like when given these prompts about like what something might look like in the future about just like uncovering like their fears about AI and things like that and understanding that it's it kind of speaks to their response to what the future might look like is kind of a response to what they think is going wrong today so like one student was kind of like, I want to, I I feel like we should be involved in the creation of AI because we're not right now. And it's totally true. Like we've just been watching like the chaos of open AI and like all of this stuff is just still centered in Silicon Valley with the same people, with the same sort of like privileged white men who have like the same perspectives <laughs> and they're developing this technology that is going to be affecting just all of us right all of us in the future and our voices are not in that room about like what the concerns might be and students like the 13 and 14 year olds we're talking to are just like really intelligent about like recognizing like i'm not in that room and I know this is going to affect me in like ways I don't even understand. And I'm scared of that. But I also want to like, I know like there's no stopping it, but I want to be part of that. And I think it's our job to kind of like take what we are learning from these students and kind of trying to elevate it to like people who can actually make decisions about this and so that might be through the funders that we work with or the ed, ed tech developers that we work with and making sure they have direct access and can understand these stories of the students who we're working with and their perspectives so i think that's just like one of like the really rewarding parts of the work, work that i do with my team is just yeah, it doesn't put the onus on us to like invent the future. It's kind of like, how do we put some of the power into the hands of like the students themselves to be able to imagine that? Yeah. What's nice about it is it not only allows them to understand where they want the future to go, but to really to dream it, right? I mean, it's like, what do you want your future to be like? And I feel like at some age, I don't know what age it is, it's like as adults, I feel like we don't dream like we used to, like a kid, <laughs> where it's like, I really want to do so. So when I think about 
all of the things you're doing, it's like, what do we want the future to look like? Whether it's AI or privacy or data within sensors that are up in the traffic cameras. And I mean, it's like, there's so many things to think about what our future is going to look like. So I love the fact that you have this focus on human-centered design because I think it has to be. And I don't think we are doing that enough. Everybody who's making the decisions to create new infrastructure, it's like the same people creating the infrastructure that we're, that created it like before. And I'm like, it's not <laughs> the same. <laughs> so, so I love, I love what you're doing. So, so now are there things, since we're talking about future, are there things maybe that you've you find particularly promising in either technology or some of the innovative solutions that you see? Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I, I mean, I can see potential while also recognizing the problems. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. One of my colleagues like was just creating images for a, one of these workshops that we're doing with students about the future of education, future of math. And she was creating these images in Midjourney to kind of show like what these future classrooms would look like. And Midjourney kept making the entire classroom of like white blonde students and teachers. And she had to keep adding more prompts to get it to make just like a diverse classroom of like black and brown students. And that was such a good metaphor for me about like how it's yeah i'm sorry like demographics are changing in this world it's going to be a a world that's made up of majority people from the global south so that classroom in 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or whatever is not going to be white and blonde sorry like this just like not the way it is but the fact that mid-journey you give them this prompt and that's what the, it was spitting out what it tells you is the perspectives of those who are in power like right now right and it's i forget what kathy o'neill who wrote weapons of math destruction said but she basically said like algorithms are opinions written in code um and that's kind of like what you see in our current ai systems and the way they're being developed i think we can dream of a different world where like that's not happening where it is being designed and built by a more diverse sort of usership or more diverse like set of developers but i don't think we're quite there yet and i think ai has a lot of potential right like it has a lot of potential to in education to kind of like ease just some of it can it can help with things like personalized learning it can help like facilitate that for teachers of like understanding where students are it could potentially do quietly do assessments but at the moment i don't trust it to do any of that the way it's being developed and so there has to be changes in who is in the room developing these kinds of technologies in order for them to work in their best way and to have the most potential for all of us. Um, and that's not going to happen overnight, but I do think there are people in the 
in technology now in these different donate domains who are kind of like challenging just like the status quo to sort of yeah remind us like we can't just keep doing this the way we've always been doing it especially if we want things to be better and more equitable yeah well said i think but it's funny because it reminds me nelson mandela i think has a quote that he said everything seems impossible until it's done and so what a lot of what you were talking about and i'm i'm going these are big things when we think about it the impact that they could have but it reminded me of a story that i when i went to an autonomous vehicle testing facility and we were doing this tour they're supposed to be testing like the autonomous vehicle and so they'll have like a person crossing the street so there's like this dummy crossing the street but all the dummies were exactly the same color they look were dressed in exactly the same thing and i was like that dummy looks nothing like my me or my kids and so i'm like how is it supposed to recognize somebody that looks like me when you're only testing on this blonde hair because <laughs> literally it was like this blonde haired white little kid walking across the street and i'm like so it's funny when you start talking about it kind of turn mid journey is like turns the a little blonde boy whatever and it's like why does everything have to flip that way like just be more inclusive like where's the dummy that looks like me or whatever but it's 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 amazing how just a, a small thing like that has significant design implications for being able to identify an autonomous vehicle, being able to identify somebody walking across the street. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, what will it do if somebody's like in a wheelchair or something? <laughs> Forget about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and, right? You know, we know these sensor systems do not recognize dark skin, too. <laughs> like, we've seen that over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> the little, like, hand-washing thing that doesn't right? turn on. Right. I'm trying to wash my hands. I'm like, oh, hello. Yeah, to <laughs> I got to go to three different versions and put my, you know. The way like, technology has developed, it's yeah. like, sometimes they're just like, oh, well, you can put that out there, and that's something that can be fixed. Like, the hand-washing thing. But it's like, oh, no, you're, you're integrating that same technology for a thing to know to not hit me in the street like no you this has to be perfected more <laughs> before that right <laughs> exactly exactly well i just really enjoy all the things that you're doing and again i just want to mention your book closing the loop systems thinking for designers because i think it's it's incredible and i think we can we can certainly all do a better job when we think about policy when we think about education i could go on and on about all sorts of things but to me anytime i have somebody that's focused on making sure that we're equity centered i love having that conversation because people can really see in everything we do, there is an equity center. And today, there are so many places where we are not equity centered. 
So thank you for the work that you're doing. And I'm just so excited to be able to have talked to you today and all of the background that you bring. So I just, I thank you. Thank you so much. So, and maybe you can tell people how they can get hold of you. I know you're doing great work at Substantial. And I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about what Substantial does, because I love the name, but just let people know how they can kind of get connected to you. Yeah. Yeah. So you can find examples of the work that my team and I do at substantial.com slash edtech and our case studies and things like that are up there in terms of our equity center design approach and education. And yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, Cheryl Kababa, and I'm the only one up there with that name. So (laughs) feel free to reach out to me or connect and you can find my book just anywhere. Like you can find it on Amazon. You can find it on my publisher site, Rosenfeld Media. And yeah, it's closing the loops for some thinking for designers. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for all you're doing. And I look forward to keeping up and staying connected because I just, I love, especially when we start talking about education, because that's such an important issue, especially coming up in our elections. So <laughs> we we want to make sure people that have the power to make these things happen are actually in the roles they need to be in order to enforce uh, or modify, shall I say, some of the policies that we currently have. So, so thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Melissa. This has been a great wide ranging conversation. And I've been so happy to talk to you about all of the work we've been doing. Thanks for joining me on the Jolly Podcast. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.